Hello and welcome to the EMS Improv Podcast, where we engage, where we are mindful, and we share or tell our stories. I am Eric Chase, and we are powered by GEMS. Today's guest is, is someone that is going to share with us a significant amount of history where EMS and emergency medicine started um, overcoming adversity, looking forward, and seeing things today that have changed, making right decisions, and not just doing what were popular decisions. Uh, today's guest everyone is John Moon. He's a former Freedom House uh, paramedic and he's retired assistant chief for the Bureau of Pittsburgh EMS. And without further ado and introduction, John Moon, I welcome you to the EMS Improv Podcast and I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you, Eric. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. John, as we were talking, uh, one, of, one of the things that you had mentioned um, was that at times we as a society are so consumed uh, with doing the what's popular or making a, a choice based upon what the masses may, may or may not be saying, as opposed to doing what is right. And I know that that's something that rings very true in your spirit. And if you'd like to share kind of what you were uh, sharing with me about that with our listeners. Uh, yes, um, I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, beyond measure uh, to say that uh, after almost 50 years, uh, Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services will be uh, swearing in its first African-American uh, in the history of the department. And it happens to be an African-American female uh, who uh, I'm very proud of primarily because she covered every job classification within the Bureau. Uh, she started out as an EMT and uh, then a paramedic and then uh, what we call a crew chief uh, and a district chief and uh, an assistant chief and then deputy chief. And uh, she'll be as coming this Friday, uh, be sworn in as the first African-American um, chief of the bureau. The uh, great thing about that is no one has ever uh, risen through the ranks uh, using that route before. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very proud of the accomplishments uh, that uh, she's been able to achieve. And uh, it's a very historic moment that will uh, commence this Friday. I love hearing that. Um, one, one of my editors actually wanted to know how you were feeling about that. And I think that that comes through. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Amira Gil Gilchrist, uh, is a, a Pittsburgher. She is a native Pittsburgher. She is uh, from from uh, Pittsburgh. She is a Pennsylvanian, and uh, she's a Yinzer. And to that point, uh, John, what brought her to EMS? And I know from everything that I've read, written, and and watched, she came in, and and you have been a, a proud mentor for her. So seeing your smile as I get to see it when you say those words. Um, hopefully that's conveyed to to the rest of the listeners. What what does that mean, and what does that look like for you? Because at this point in time, you've transitioned. You're now firmly uh, a Pittsburgh EMS official. When she's coming in into your office, and without getting deeply personal, how mm -hmm. does this look, and how are you able to uh, receive her and mentor her and see her now at the highest position uh, available in in our profession? Well, uh, it it was. Something that had never happened before is uh, she actually 
came to see me uh, at my office and stated that she wanted to uh, work for Pittsburgh uh, Emergency Medical Services. And at that particular time, um, me being in charge of hiring and recruitment, um, I was so accustomed to going out and finding individuals or recruiting individuals or going to job fairs and, and community centers. And um, no one uh, had actually come to me uh, on their own volition uh, to, to actually seek employment. Uh, and that, to me, set her uh, apart from my usual uh, role of recruiting. And um, once I sat and talked to her, um, I knew that there was something special uh, about her. And um, at the time, we were not hiring uh, paramedics. Uh, and she was a paramedic at the time that she uh, came to me. And I said, if you uh, would take the position of an EMT uh, and the next paramedic positions that opened up, we would definitely promote you to that position. So she kind of uh, was so grateful to, to work for Pittsburgh EMS that she was willing to take a, a lesser trained, uh, for lack of a better term, position. Uh, and that in itself is something that um, I had not experienced before uh, due to the fact that Pittsburgh EMS had a history in order for you to come there to work, you already had to be uh, a paramedic. But in an effort to uh, diversify the department, which was uh, my primary concern at that time, um, we started uh, new employees at an EMT level, uh, and then they got promoted up to the paramedic level. So she was able to say, okay, well, I will take a lesser paying position with the idea that uh, at one point in time, uh, a paramedic position will open up and I'll move up in rank and, and go from there. And that's the one thing that stood out uh, with her. That That's exceptional. And, and very few people, I, I, looking back, you know, can say that they were willing to take a lesser trained or lesser even, quote unquote, professional position in order to get entrenched and get their foot in the door and then have the, the, the longstanding perseverance uh, to continue on to to this point where we know she's going to be sworn in as chief on Friday, um, so that that brings us to kind of today, and we want to talk a little bit about Freedom House 2.0 and and uh, people that helped push the barometer and and to move things forward. Uh, Phil Hal and Mitch Brown, uh, who you worked with and and beside uh, Dr. Nancy Carolyn, uh, Dr. Peter Safar. Um, so let's, if you're okay, let's 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 go back in history uh, yes. for some time, and uh, Montefiore uh, Hospital, where you're uh, an orderly, and having been in Pittsburgh, and my brother going to Pitt, and 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 seeing and knowing these areas in Forbes and Fifth Avenue, and knowing exactly where your house was when you moved up from uh, Atlanta, um, this hits home in in so many different ways, but. If we go to you at Montefiore Hospital, um, you're married, have one child at the time and one one on the way. And tell us what that description is and how you felt um, when you saw these two men and how they commanded everyone's attention 
and and you looked and you asked who they were and what they were and kind of how that propelled you to the next steps. And, and that's a very interesting uh, dilemma. And it's one that has stuck with me primarily because uh, even though to this day, I never knew who those two gentlemen was, um, primarily because uh, at that particular time, working at a, as an orderly uh, in the hospital, primary concern with patient care, uh, nothing from an advanced level uh, other than perhaps inserting Foley catheters or something into that nature. But um, we were preparing a, a patient to be discharged uh, to home. And uh, these two gentlemen walked into the room, uh, both African-Americans uh, with afros and beards, because that was the style at that particular time. And it, it was uh, interesting because when they walked in the room, they commanded the presence of everyone around there. They didn't demand it. They commanded it. Just their mere presence commanded uh, the attention of everyone in that room, including myself. So uh, that's how professionally they presented themselves. Okay, we're here to transport this patient home. Uh, let us know what's wrong with them. We'll place them on a stretcher and take care of them. There's nothing else you have to worry about from that point on. And I kept watching these two guys and um, I, I, I didn't know who they were, uh, but I knew that there was something about them, the way they carried themselves, the professionalism that uh, they exhibited at that particular time really uh, kind of put me in a state of, uh, I don't know, hysteria for lack of a better term i was in awe of these guys and and i kept watching them and i said wow this this is amazing i've never seen any anyone like that before because as an orderly you're oh, for lack of a better term one step up from housekeeping mm -hmm. but i was was content at being in that position but needless to say there's always that little voice in the back of my mind that says okay there's something better you need to be doing. And um, once these gentlemen walked in and, and they were preparing the patient, I watched how they conducted themselves. And I, and I watched how uh, neatly pressed uh, their uniforms were. And they had a, a radio that was saying something that obviously I couldn't make out at the time because I wasn't accustomed to, to listening to one. And, and I happened to notice the uh, patch over their left uh, breast, and it said Freedom House Ambulance Service. And I just kept watching them. And once they left there, I was so in awe of them. And I said, wow, that's something I, I have to do. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, you've been an orderly for four or five years. You, you've transported patients back and forth to physical therapy, uh, to the operating room, you've made beds, you've cleaned individuals. You so what more can I not be doing that wouldn't make me, you know, able to qualify for being one of those guys? Mm -hmm. And uh, so once I, I left and I, I went home and I did some research and I found out where their offices were. And ironically, their offices were directly across the street from where um, I worked. Uh, so I went to Freedom House's offices, which were on the 10th floor of Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, and I walked in and the gentleman said, can I help you? 
And, you know, I'm as confident as ever. <laughs> and I walked in and I said, I'm here to uh, put in an application for a job. He said, okay. He said, uh, all right, uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. If I showed you a picture of the heart, would you be able to diagram the circulatory system? Uh, no. Okay, uh, if I showed you a, a diagram of the lungs, would you be able to diagram the uh, label, the respiratory tree? No. He said, okay, well, you're not qualified to work here. So that wasn't what I <clears throat> expected to hear. And, and so I left there rather disheartened and dejected. And I said, okay, John, now you know what you want to do. It's up to you to find out how to do it. So I went uh, back to work and finished my shift and, and went home that evening and uh, started scanning through the yellow pages, which probably don't exist today. Uh, and I found out where I could find a basic training program um, as a emergency medical technician. And it was at a local fire academy. And I went there for 13 weeks, uh, twice a week, and um, passed the practical exam as well as the written and waited for my certificate to arrive in the mail along with the patches and, and things which they were, they were giving out at that time. And I went back to Freedom House with those credentials and showed them to uh, the gentleman in charge, who was Mitch Brown. And uh, I was hired there on the spot. Uh, so much so that um, he um, made an appointment for me to leave Freedom House's offices and go directly to the uniform store to uh, get my uniforms. So I had arrived at that particular moment. Um, I had accomplished unbeknownst to me, my calling. And I uh, went to a uniform store and uh, got the uniforms and started actually the next day uh, on the 4012 shift. Mm. Now, the dilemma I had is I still had my job working uh, at Montefiore. So I worked 16 hours a day, 73 and 4012 at Freedom House for about two years until I got so accustomed to uh, working at Freedom House and it, it became a part of me uh, that I resigned from uh, Montefiore and uh, worked full-time on the 4 12 shift at uh, Freedom House. And as that saying going, the rest uh, is history. Uh, <laughs> so I had found my calling in the most unusual uh, way. And it's ironic because I, I, I never looked back at that particular point in time. Um, I never even thought about doing anything else uh, but working as a paramedic for Freedom House. Perseverance and tenacity. And, and for those that don't know kind of your history uh, or haven't read Kevin Hazard's book, American Sirens, or, or watched uh, mm -hmm. Annette Banks in the WQED um, documentary you were brought to pittsburgh uh by a an aunt if i remember correctly and because you your father at the time uh didn't feel as he if he could take care of you and your your sister and over the course of time it, it became unbeknownst to you that your father had attempted to try to come back 
to, to see you or even get you back after he kind of got on his feet. So you're, you're coming from a place of hardship and, and fight from this, this whole trip and trying to find your bearings in your way um, in the Hill District, in, in a beautiful part of Pittsburgh, adjacent to you know, downtown district and, and Oakland, and yet you're still trying to figure out who, what, where, when, and how you're going to be. And two men who you still to this day don't know change and alter the course of your history, including being able to share that story with us today. Um, with all that being said, as you matriculated and you continued to grow in Freedom House and the political tide started changing and Mayor Flaherty came in with, with ideas of eradicating emergency medical services and defunding them and uh, all the grants and everything that you had all received to stay were starting to come to an end of their, their cap. And uh, you guys were still operating still with passion drive in that overarching professionalism that to each of your core is is exemplified in in your work and in your in your communication with me today when you had seen that the writing was on the wall and that things started to make that political tide and we know based upon the attempts to eradicate freedom house from the city roles and even a mention of it and not doing a signing over ceremony and know that that is uh, a level of racism, you know, trying to cut the color, the person of color out of, of those eight years of advanced professionalism where each of you in Freedom House, the, the Department of Transportation is getting ready to say that Freedom House is going to be the model for which we use for all EMS organizations across the country. Um, you did the training in uh, the disaster training where people were uh, overwhelmingly amazed. Um, so if we can go to that point where there's that cultural change, a political change and direct observation witnessed and felt by each of you where there's a, that overarching race, racist tenant, um, how did you deal with that in the time? And what were some of your thoughts and how did you continue to maintain that professionalism and desire to continue forward? Well, Eric, during that time, um, it was a, a, a period of uncertainty, um, particularly um, once the political winds start to change and um, the um, chief executive officer at that time started putting various restrictions on how Freedom House uh, operated and where they could operate and things of that nature. Um, something as simple as not being allowed to use your sirens on emergency calls. Um, and we subsequently had a uh, contract with uh, the city of Pittsburgh to provide uh, uh, pre-hospital care in the business district. And um, we were part of a government entity that really didn't have any control over us. And they kind of used uh, the financial backing to try to grab a hold to it, to try to maintain some type of uh, control. And you do that by subsequently uh, minimizing uh, the financial uh, commitments 
that you have. Um, maybe uh, I'm expecting you to give me, say, $50,000 at the 1st of January, and I only get 10 from you. Um, and maybe the other balance should have been paid in June, and you gave me 30000 at that time. So you kind of pick and choose how you want to um, handle your financial obligations, and that's exactly what they were. And and those are are, are just one of the hurdles that uh, Freedom House had to deal with that made it very very problematic. Um, unfortunately, if if you if I look at the overall um, makeup, um, you can essentially say that Freedom House somewhat was built on a, a, what I would call fiscal quicksand. Um, a grant here and a donation there. And so, so it survived on, on kind of rocky soil uh, as far as the stability factor was concerned. So that made it vulnerable for um, the city government to come right in and consume it because they knew which routes to take in order to do that. So once that was done, um, it, 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 put everyone uh, there, including myself, in, in a period of uncertainty. Uh, you, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, Pittsburgh EMS started uh, in June of 1975, and Freedom House was still operating. But Pittsburgh EMS couldn't come into uh, the Hill District or Oakland uh, because those were uh, Freedom House's uh, territories of operation. And uh, we would see their vehicles, uh, but there was very little interaction between us and them, because unbeknownst to them at that time, we just looked at them as another uh, ambulance service, not one that was going to eventually come in and just consume or swallow up our Freedom House. And those are the things that were going on behind the scenes that uh, me being uh, strictly involved in the, the operational component of it, um, didn't know about. And um, the writing was on the wall at that particular time. And it, it, it you know, was, was a period of, of confusion uh, because we didn't know whether we were going to be part of this system or whether we were going to just be pushed off to the side. And uh, there was agreements behind the scenes being uh, trying to, you know, trying to be worked out uh, to make sure that uh, we were uh, included in this new system. And uh, once that agreement was in place, uh, things started to to somewhat uh, have some uh, sense of hope, for lack of a better term. And uh, what I I often think about is Freedom House had a, a, a an agreement with Pittsburgh EMS or the city of Pittsburgh, I should say, to uh, hire and um, bring on uh, all of its workers as well as its equipment. And the agreement was, was, they honored that component of it to a certain extent. The agreement said you had to bring them on, but it didn't say you had to keep them. Mm -hmm. So that was a vulnerable component within that agreement that no one 
thought about. And 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 as a result of that, uh, unfortunately, and and I don't want anyone to think that I'm this disgruntled employee or anything like that, because I love Pittsburgh EMS and I love the people that work there. But we're talking about a, a, a different time when you have an entirely white organization coming into an urban environment because 90% of the people were not Pittsburgh residents. So they really at that time were not accustomed to working in an urban environment. Uh, so you they, they experienced culture shock uh, at that time. Uh, they were not used to dealing with individuals or patients or residents that lived in public housing. Uh, or a particular resident that may have been prone to, to drug abuse uh, and or violence. They were not accustomed to that type of stuff in it. So since you're not accustomed to it, you come in with preconceived ideas, uh, preconceived notions of what it would be like coming into an, from a suburban environment, coming into an urban environment. So a lot depends on the way I was raised. If I lived in this suburban environment, what uh, I was taught or what my parents may have mentioned to me. Uh, so I came in uh, to a point where there was periods of uncertainty. Uh, in other words, oh, I'm coming into the city of Pittsburgh. That's a very dangerous area to come into. Uh, so I have to be prepared for the worst uh, so individuals came in with the idea that I have to bring this weapon in because I don't know what's going to happen to me because I'm coming into Pittsburgh and that's a violent area. Uh, or basically I can stereotype various neighborhoods, uh, uh, public housing complexes. You're not going to get a stroke or a heart attack or, or a diabetic emergency in those particular areas. All you're going to get is shootings and stabbings and drug overdoses and domestic violence. So I stereotype a particular neighborhood. So with that, with me doing that, I respond in that fashion. I may say, well, I'm going into this public housing complex. Can the police meet me there? Without knowing that this could be a life-threatening medical emergency. Or uh, I would perhaps stereotype an affluent white neighborhood that says, okay, since uh, this is predominantly white, that's where your medical calls are going to be, your heart attacks and your strokes and your diabetics and things of that nature. So I respond to that area with a different mindset. And, and so uh, it became normal for a department as a whole to to stereotype various neighborhoods. And in doing so, you uh, input certain policies and procedures to go along with that. Uh, the best example I could give you is uh, that was a policy uh, where we had a no medical emergency. And, and that simply stated that I could come to your house and make a determination as to whether uh, you were sick enough to go in my vehicle or not. Um, and uh, I pick and chose when to use that format. Uh, and, and, and it was, you know, there was nothing you could do about it because it was department policy that um, I, I chose to do that. 
Uh, so there was no checks and balances uh, behind that. It's just that I made the decision. I'm the paramedic. And, and you know, can you find alternate means to get to the emergency room? And I, I, I compared that to Freedom House where we took every patient that needed or wanted to go to the emergency room without regards to uh, whether you were severely ill or whether you had a minor injury. Uh, and that's what we were there for. We were there for the community itself. And uh, unfortunately, once municipal government uh, took over, you had an entirely different set of operating guidelines. So hearing that, and, and you retired, oh my Lord, was it 2009, 10? Yes, nine, 2009. Nine. Yeah. Um, you have seen in, in EMS, as you continue to see it, it, it seems rather cyclical. Either you have very engaged medical directors, which you had with Dr. Uh, uh, Nancy Caroline, uh, where she actually rode the ambulance and, and you had conversations with her. And I wanna to get to a specific thing here in a moment. When, when you were emboldened to do something uh, because of the training, but also she commanded to do it. Um, to, to where agencies today lack some of the direct oversight and supervision for medical directors, where we allow those uh, intrinsic uh, biases to overwhelm us and to, to not be mindful of those biases when we go to a certain neighborhood or a certain community where we're gonna treat that person or community uh, differently because we're different from them in, in, in different ways, as opposed to just letting our humanity, uh, all, all the good and, and the bad just be on, on Front Street and let them know that we mean good and let that translate by positively uh, treating them from the least significant injury or illness to the absolute most significant injury or illness. And, and that's one of the things that uh, before I get into the, the specific with Dr. Caroline and you, uh, seeking respect. For eight years, you, you all had to fight to get respect from police agencies, from nurses, from doctors, when you'd go to hospitals that weren't Presby specifically, when you guys went had to go to Montefiore after you intubated that patient. And we'll come back to that in a minute if, you, if it's okay with you. Sure seeking respect and having to earn respect almost on a call-to-call, day-to-day basis. How did you fortify yourself emotionally or spiritually to do that on every consistent level and for each of you still to maintain that highest level of professionalism and medical care that you provided to anybody that you encounter, whether they be black, white, or other ethnicity? You know, Eric, that, that's an excellent, excellent question. And it's, it's one that um, I am still in awe of today about each and every person that, that, that worked at Freedom House because we all had a job to do. And obviously in our various communities that we served on a day-to-day -day basis, we had garnered a, a tremendous amount of respect and 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 you know, that was normal. But the 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 situations where uh, we didn't get that, we didn't allow it to be a deterrent um, because we, we were so accustomed to doing 
the job at hand to doing what was needed that, um, okay, you, you don't want me to touch you because of who I am. Um, that's your right. And I understand that, but you also run a risk that if you don't allow me to do the things that, that are required for me to do because of who I am, basically, you run the risk that by the time you get to the hospital or to the emergency room, you 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 could be worse off. So we had to come up with a psychological approach in dealing with uh, that type of uh, racism. Uh, we came up with what I would call a very ingenious idea in dealing with uh, medical calls that were not given to Freedom House in our own district. Uh, and, you know, there was no 911 system at that time, and all calls had to go through uh, a police dispatcher. So there were there were serious medical calls that the police handled in Freedom House's operate area of operation that we didn't get. So once we were able to find that out, we said, okay, we can't force you to do this. So we have to come up with an alternate plan. So we bought a police scanner and we monitored the police radio. So whenever a medical call came in of a severe nature in our area that the police did not give us, we self-dispatched. And oftentimes we would get to the resident's home, treat them and be transporting them to the emergency room and actually pass the police in route. So we 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 came up with alternate ways of trying to uh, accomplish a goal that we all set out to achieve, and it, it's interesting because, you know, we were, we were human beings. We were no different than than any other person. Uh, we had different trials and struggles and hurdle hurdles and barriers in our life, but we never sat around the station. And I know this to be a fact and complained and murmured and talked, oh, woe is me type of, I, I didn't have an opportunity to do A, B, C, D, A, E, or my mother didn't do this. And, and never once did we sit around and do that. Because whether we said it outwardly, what we did inwardly is we refused to allow our past to determine our future. Mm. So we went about delivering a service and living in the moment. And that was the way that we were able to accomplish something that it, that had never been done before. Uh, we weren't set out to, to be the proving ground of EMS system as you see today. We were providing a service to a uh, underserved or neglected community. And in doing so, we were able to set the standards and the foundations and the guidelines that uh, most people take for granted today. But that wasn't our overall intent. Uh, we were more concerned about making sure that this underserved or neglected community of individuals got the best possible care that uh, we could give them because that was all they had. We were all they had because you couldn't get a cab to come into that area. Uh, obviously, the police, unfortunately, uh, decided to show up whenever they felt like it. Uh, and obviously, you 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 weren't getting the proper care 
at that time because the individual would place you in the back of a wagon, which perhaps it may be transported a drunk or a prisoner at the time before, and you laid back there until they got you to the emergency room. So if something happened to you, uh, you stopped breathing or your heart stopped beating by the time you got to the emergency room, you were worse off uh, than when they picked you up. So um, we, as an organization, decided to do something about that. And as a result of us doing something about it, um, other entities started wanting to emulate or copy what we were actually doing. And and even today, as I, I I'm just I just marvel at some of the things that we did or created or designed that most EMS systems take for granted. Uh, it, it was always this way. No, it wasn't. And so uh, that's that's the one thing that I I, I think about when I uh, think about what we did at Freedom House. Uh, I'm. My jaws uh, on the table here, hearing that when when I see and understand what people say, well, we're, you know, we call the police and they respond to the emergency, and uh, it's not medical treatment. There's no medical care, and it's 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 more than likely uh, we're not even treating the human being across from us with respect. It's just get in, let's go. Right. Um, so you guys dealt with that as a community. Um, you stood up for those under underserved people to provide the best care and to incur the rigorous training. Uh, and to that, I want to, I want to talk about when you had gone to class and, uh, and Dr. Saffer said, Hey, John, I need you to come with me. What was going through your mind when he called you? And did you know that you were immediately going to go down to the operating room and then have him watch you with the patient surgeon there? Uh, what were you kind of your feelings? Cause for those people that don't know, it, it is believed in and widely known, uh, well, we want to make widely known that you were uh, the first paramedic uh, with that advanced training that did it on the street or in the field uh, endotracheal intubation. So let's go back. If when doctor you went in for a training and Dr. Saffer came and got you, what was going through your mind and, and kind of uh, can you talk us through that? And then I want to go to the call um, that uh, that you and Dr. Uh, Caroline had that conversation via radio. And she told you to innovate a patient. If if you're cool with that, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the 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 beauty of of that situation um, is that when I went to the operating room to uh, meet with Doctor Saffer, I didn't know why I was going there. We had obviously practiced the procedure on uh, mannequins. And we were in the anatomy lab uh, with um, animals. Uh, so um, at the time that uh, I was requested to, to meet him there, um, I had no idea why I was there. So I go to the uh, floor of the operating room and, and, and he and I open the door and step in and the whole room became silent. I'm standing there with him, and and there's no doubt in my mind that that uh, the the pivotal reason is that an uh, African American coming into that operating room at that time that didn't have a mop and a bucket was something that people had never been accustomed to. 
So the the uh, OR technicians stopped what they were doing and looked at the door. And and the, the surgeon, as he was gowned up, he looked over and the room became quiet. And Dr. Saffer was standing there with me. He politely walked over to the anesthesiologist that was sitting at the head of the patient and told them to get up. There was no, would you please get up or no, <laughs> no respect. He said, get up and you sit down and intubate that patient. And, you know, I don't know whether it exists today, but that there were also amphitheaters uh, in the operating rooms where medical students or residents or whomever could look down and see. And, and at that particular time, I knew all those people were there because I saw them when I walked in. But when I went over and sat down at the head of the patient and uh, intubated them, I they were not there. The only ones that were there were just me and that patient. I saw the surgeon standing there waiting to do whatever he was going to do, but it was just me and that individual. So I intubated the patient. And as I think back on that procedure, Eric, failure was not an option at that time because we were in the process of, of um, compiling the, the emergency care in the street manual. So my successfully completing that procedure also indicated that, wow, lay people, uh, paramedics are able to perform that procedure. So we can put that as part of the training uh, in this manual. Um, so once I completed it, uh, we went from room to room, intubating unsuspecting patients that were being prepared for surgery. Um, lo and behold, did I know at the time, probably a week or less later that I would take that same procedure that I performed in the operating room. Remember, I was a lay person. And, and, and a lay person that never walked into an operating room, they didn't have an MD or PhD or any other initial behind their name, and did that. Little did I know at that particular time that I would have to go out into the field and perform that same procedure. Um, and that gets us into, you know, uh, the confidence and respect that Nancy Caroline uh, had uh, for us. So it by doing hard work, by overcoming uh, anxieties and fears, by trusting, because you had a relationship with uh, Dr. Saffer, uh, and trusting because you had a relationship with Dr. Uh, Caroline, each of you were that much more emboldened. And, and they, particularly Dr. Caroline, from everything that I've researched, was even more ingrained and entrenched because she actually rode out with each of you and took it very personally. And her motivations were for uh, nothing other than pure uh, professionalism and training and experience and knowledge and skill growth. Uh, and that and that ran paramount. So from that time that Dr. Uh, Saffer brought you in and you had no idea why you were going to that call then, when, um, well, what, can you, do you mind telling us, uh, you know, how that tones came in you guys, Got in the got in the ambulance and, and raced to the call and kind of what was going on. So I'll let you just do that without any other thoughts. Um, 
Yes, um, we received a call for a uh, elderly gentleman that was unconscious and was having difficulty breathing. Uh, at that particular time, me and my partner we, uh, responded there. And and what happens is, if you can envision this area, there was no such things as standing orders. So, uh, in order to uh, perform. Even the basic things, such as an IV, you had to go through your medical director. And that was the beauty of it. So, um, and we knew that she monitored everything that we did 24-7. So we called in and gave her a um, history and physical on the patient, which we had to do on every single patient. And she made sure of that. And uh, I remember telling her that the person was unconscious um, and they were breathing, but they were very shallow respirations. And uh, she said, intubate that patient and start an IV on At that particular time, and, and, and this is true, and, and I, I, I thought she had lost her mind. Despite the fact that I had done it less <laughs> than a week before, in an operating room, it, it, it's it's something like, okay, you are doing it here, so we're going to take this procedure and take it out into the street. That wasn't the way it was supposed to occur, but that was the way it did occur. <laughs> so, um, okay, I intubated a person in an operating room. Okay, big deal. All right. And um, once she told me to intubate the patient out in the field, I went ahead on and did it uh, on the very first try. And called her back and told her the intubation was successful and we were preparing the patient to transport. Now, that was fine. But what we failed to realize at the time is that the emergency room were not accustomed to people that look like me or <laughs> anyone else coming in with an uh, intubated patient because it had never been done before. So I was challenged by the ER physician at that time as to uh, who intubated the person. And I said, I did. And who are you? I'm John Moon. And who told you to intubate the patient? Uh, our medical director, Dr. Nancy Caroline. And I said, uh, she's the medical director for us at Freedom House Ambulance Service. And fortunately for me, that happened to be a nurse there at the time. And she became aware of what we were doing. And she mentioned to the physician that they are allowed to do that now. And subsequently, he was more receptive of it uh, after she said that. But, it, you know, you, you're walking in. I don't want to say it was a hostile environment because it really wasn't in the terms but it was something that um, I was challenged on because the only time you did something was, you know, physicians rule the operating room no different than they rule, rule the emergency room and, and things of that nature. So here you got a patient that this doctor is going to treat and he's already intubated. Uh, the IV is already in. Uh, the only thing was left for you to do is perhaps, you know, 
put EKG uh, leads on him and monitor his EKGs and, and find out what his main problem was and probably do blood work and things of that nature because all of the critical stuff had already been done and the emergency rooms were not accustomed to, to that happening, particularly uh, by a group of black men. And, and that carried it its own set of challenges uh, altogether. And so you, you got people coming in that's intubated, that's IV started, that's on the cardiac monitor, and the person uh, that's doing it doesn't look like the ER staff. So that's the type of challenges that we had to uh, get accustomed to. And um, often, I, I remember this as it happened yesterday, um, we transported the patient to a, a local emergency room and and I, Dr. Nancy Caroline was with us at the time, and um, I did a complete workup on this, this person, a history and physical, vital signs, uh, EKG strips, listened to his lung sounds, listened to his heart, and all those things. And I compiled all that information in my mind. And I was preparing to give that to the ER, not knowing or not taking in consideration that they were not used to that. They were not accustomed to someone coming in saying uh, the blood pressure is whatever, the heart rate is whatever, the, the EKG strip is normal sinus rhythm or bradycardia or, or, or what have you, uh, or uh, we started an IV or the lung sounds are clear or the heart sound is is a slight murmur. And, and, and so those are the things that we did that, the emergency room was not accustomed to uh, an ambulance coming in, uh, bringing a patient that's completely examined, that treatment has already been done for them before you got there. So um, I was laughed at. Hmm. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I was somewhat um, disturbed by it. And I went back to Dr. Nancy Caroline and I told her, I said, you know, I don't know why we're even learning all of this because all they're going to do is laugh at us anyway. So she looked at me and said, if you don't learn to speak the language of the emergency room, then no one will ever listen to you. Go back into the ER and find a physician and then do the exact same thing. So I did that and I was able to talk to the physician using their own lingo or their own language and, and that they were accustomed to, which had never been done before. So obviously it was received uh, a whole lot better. And and usually what we were doing, we considered to be a normal course of things, but we were breaking ground on, on all kinds of fronts uh, from bringing a patient in that's already immobilized or a person with an IV and, and things like that. And, and um, Eric, I often think about uh, today is that we're in an opioid crisis mm -hmm. throughout this country. And uh, the drug of choice to treat that is Narcan. And everybody has it. Uh, paramedics have it. Firefighters have it. Police have it. Uh, even average citizen can go over to the drugstore and get uh, Narcan. But what people don't know 
and that's why this is important, is Freedom House gave Narcan back in 1972. We were the very first service to take it out of the operating room and or the emergency room and take it out into the field to treat heroin overdoses. Obviously, we gave it differently at that time because we didn't want the overdose patient to wake up in the back of our vehicle because it would have been difficult to control. So we, we had to titrate it and use their respiratory rate as a guide and kind of kept them unconscious or in a stupor because we still had control of them until they got into a more controlled environment, which would have been an emergency room where they could you know, control them better. So very few overdose patients woke up in the back of our vehicles, and that was intended. Now you give it bolus, the guy wakes up fighting, he jumps out of the back of the vehicle and runs away or, or goes through withdrawals and things like that. So there was really ingenious ways of doing things that that uh, still today boggles my mind. It, uh, hearing that, it boggles mind too, and, and uh, being a clinical uh, instructor at times and and being a, having been a flight medic and a fire medic and a hospital-based and a private uh, EMS organizations. Even today, uh, Narcan specifically is given so quickly and so robustly that we're having combative patients, uh, patients now suffering from acute withdrawals, mm -hmm. uh, patients that uh, are vomiting all over everyone, uh, whatever the case may be. And medically, clinically, the most appropriate way is like you said to titrate it you guys were doing that in 1972 and if the airway needed to be taken then intubate the patient otherwise ventilate to support their respiratory drive correct right right <laughs> you're absolutely right so i i want people to hear and, and so many people they're going to listen just because we can doesn't mean we should and how we do should be reflected upon how it was done so well, even by people that didn't look like us or talk like us. One of the things that you, you said that gives me goosebumps is when you said you found the doctor and you spoke to him or her, presumably a him at the time, mm -hmm. um, that when you spoke their level, their jargon, it, it, it's a professional interaction that you created more a relationship with as opposed to just being transactional. And that is what we need to know. And, and the history of Freedom House gives us that perspective. Had to continuously build and renew and grow relationships with people because you were as easily taken off a line item uh, in city government from 100,000 to 50,000 to we're now taking over uh, to being eradicated. So everything that you're sharing for people that don't know, um, and, and I'm just gonna reiterate, Mm -hmm. you, you, utilizing Narcan in 1972 and appropriately using it for titration, ventilating when need to be, IVs, intubations, and transmitting, reading and transmitting EKGs. There are agencies today, John, that don't transmit EKGs, uh, that even despite the capabilities, medical directors aren't involved and aren't doing this with their, with their teams. Uh, we owe a debt of gratitude uh, and, and I say that personally, because I can't speak for anyone else. Mm -hmm. I appreciate and, and, and am indebted to the, the works of each of you and the physician oversights that you had and, and relish in that. I know as we kind of get close to a, an hour talking and we could talk for hours and I know the listeners could listen for hours. Um, 
there, there's something that I was curious about. You continue to persevere and, and to be strong. And so in 75, when October 15th, when Freedom House ran its last call, um, and just prior to that, uh, in Squirrel Hill, uh, a pediatric was hit by, I think, a city transportation uh, vehicle. And the police said they didn't care. They wanted Freedom House paramedics because they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Then get into October 15th, 1975, um, and how did the communities that surrounded the Hill District in Oakland and the uh, the city proper where you were responding to started asking questions saying, why weren't we getting this high level medical care? And then addressing uh, to 77 when you stayed with Pittsburgh EMS and you went and demanded uh, the promotion. So I know that's several things, but so we'll go from uh, the Squirrel Hill call to 1975 October to you transitioning and being tested and tested and tested uh, so that'll that'll take us uh, obviously several more minutes, but okay. Thank you. Um, well, the the incident um, it's interesting because remember earlier I said we had to start monitoring police calls because we were not uh, given them, and that was all part of that process because despite the fact that it occurred in an area that we were not uh, allowed to surface it in itself presented a unique set of circumstances because the 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 police were the primary uh, transport services for medical emergencies in a lot of your affluent areas outside of the Hill District. And um, so this call comes in for a child struck by a Port Authority bus. And um, we heard the call uh, and the police arrived there within a minute or so. And once they observed the fact that this was beyond their scope of training, um, they requested the dispatcher to send Freedom House. And the dispatcher replied that I can't send them out there because it's not their district. So the police um, officer in a panic state says, well, you better send someone out here that knows what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned, we happened to monitor the actual call itself and responded. And uh, it was a very traumatic injury um, to the child um, to the point that um, he he needed uh, surgery to repair uh, both internal and external damages to it lower extremities. Um, so we subsequently got there and immobilized him and, 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 uh, treated him and transported him uh, to the emergency room. Um, that in itself uh, presented a, a unique set of circumstances, primarily because um, it somehow awakened um, the community that didn't have this type of service. And um, they started to uh, look more at what the Hill District was having versus what they had. And uh, they would say to the effect, how in the world could this underserved, poverty-stricken community have better medical care than than I do 
over here, I own this $500,000 home, or I own this business, or I contributed to your re-election campaign, uh, or I voted for you. Uh, I'm voicing my concerns as a, as a citizen out here to the political powers. Now, if you want to be uh, elected or re-elected to that uh, high-ranking position, then you have to do something. And um, that in itself kind of put pressure on uh, the mayor's office to, to, to make some changes. And uh, in order for him to make those changes, he had to subsequently two things, get rid of the entity that he had no control over and subsequently establish one that he would have control over. So as a result of that, you have the, the uh, creation of Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services uh, in May or June of 1975. Uh, and subsequently, as a result of that, in order to uh, really have control over everything, you have to eliminate the entity that you don't have control over. So subsequently, uh, there were steps taken behind the scenes uh, to make that happen. And uh, obviously, financial uh, compensation was one of them, uh, as well as putting certain restrictions on, on how to respond to medical calls. And so subsequently, you put those constraints on the organization as a whole, and it makes it very difficult for the organization to continue to uh, survive. So subsequently, you um, create your own, and and the mistake uh, Pittsburgh EMS made is it brought in um, 98% white males uh, from the suburbs and that had no concept of an urban environment. So it lacked empathy, it lacked compassion for the residents, because I'm not used to seeing this. And, and so once the city decides to uh, disband Freedom House, uh, you have to do something with the employees. And it was interesting because, like I mentioned earlier, that was this written agreement that you had to take them, but there was nothing to say that you had to keep them. So that was a systematic way of eliminating as many of Freedom House's employees as humanly possible. And it was very, very successful to the point 75 to 80% of the employees that came over from Freedom House uh, were subsequently uh, terminated. And I look at that in, in, in one way is that if you eliminate the individuals or the history makers, then you eliminate that part of history that they made. So that's the impetus of why very few people um, know about Freedom House because that was a concerted effort to make sure that that part of history was removed from the history books or from anyone's mind. And, and so the majority of the people were uh, eliminated and, and, and it, we were put in what we would call a survival of the fittest type of mentality. We were tested here and tested there. And, and none of the training that I did with, with Freedom House uh, was accepted. 
um, despite the fact that we um, did interventions in the field, that we had gave Narcan and started IVs and defibrillated patients, and uh, none of that uh, mattered. I became the third person on a two-person crew. So I wasn't allowed to examine patients. I wasn't allowed to drive the vehicle. I wasn't allowed to talk on the radio. I was just an observer. And that went on, uh, I would say, easily for a couple of months until one day we went on a call and we walked into a person's home and the person was unconscious, not breathing, and didn't have a heartbeat. They were essentially in cardiac arrest. And the crews did not know what to do, didn't have a clue. So they turned around to the person who wasn't allowed to do anything and said, you take over. So I subsequently assigned responsibilities, someone to start an IV, someone to set up the intubation kit, someone to put the monitor on and things like that. And we subsequently saved the person's life. Now, that was all well and good. But the irony of it is it had to be kept quiet because I wasn't allowed to do anything. And once that occurred, the light bulb went off in my head and said, John, you see exactly what's going on here. So it's up to you to decide whether you're going to continue to tolerate it or you're going to do something about it. So I decided to, 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 to step up my game. I became more aggressive in, in treating patients. I became more aggressive and in, in, in boisterous in um, deciding on what type of treatment uh, we gave and, and, and which hospital and what was wrong with the patient. So people essentially knew who John Moon was within the department. That was all well and good, but some of the same people that I had, for lack of a better term, secretly precepted we're getting promoted to uh, supervisory roles. And um, that didn't set too well with me uh, because that part of me um, said, you have people telling you what to do that know less than you do. So I voiced my concerns and was subsequently uh, promoted to a supervisory position. And uh, what I noticed during that time frame is that the department, as I kind of went up through the ranks, the department remained steadily white. Unfortunately, uh, Pittsburgh EMS went 10 years with hiring an African-American. Yes, 10 years 10 without year. hiring one African-American one, employee. without hiring one. Wow. So I subsequently... Uh, had already made myself a commitment during that time frame that if I ever got into a position to make a change, I would devote the remaining part of my career to doing that. And as a result, I voiced my concerns to uh, my supervisory personnel. Uh, needless to say, it was met with resistance, but uh, I was able to to uh, get them to understand the the seriousness of of what was going on here. And as a result, I was able to uh, design the very first diversity recruitment program for Pittsburgh Emergency Medical Services. And it was very successful. And I used the same format that we used at Freedom House. 
we went out into the community. I went to community centers. I went to job fairs. So I went out and recruited the individuals and, and, and selected them and put them into a training program and paid them uh, uh, a stipend, if you will, uh, to go to this training. And once they completed the EMT training, um, provided them with an opportunity to become paramedics. And once they got to the paramedic level, their stipend, the amount went up. And also I was able to get the department to hold job positions open because you had invested say five or $600,000 into the training of these individuals did you really want them to leave and go work for another EMS system? So these individuals that completed the training program made a lateral move into the uh, positions because the jobs were there waiting for them. And they did the internships on Pittsburgh EMS's units. So that it made that transition a lot smoother. And, and that uh, became the normal way of hiring people. Uh, once I was there, there was, we would never, we would always make sure that there were African-Americans, males, females in every class and every hiring uh, group that uh, we hired. And since that was my responsibility, it was, the onus was on me to make sure that happened. And that continued up until, um, the time that uh, I can laugh about it now, I, I was asked to leave. So uh, now, uh, unfortunately, the department kind of reverted back to its old ways and the the diversity issues uh, within the department are rather uh, dismal at best right now, around two to three percent. So wow. hopefully, um, and I'm sure. Uh, with the uh, new chief that's coming on, that uh, those types of things will will be put at a priority level. John, uh, so many amazing things there, and, and gut wrenching in some ways, and and uh, heartwarming and heart uh, spirit fulfilling, uh, almost simultaneously. Um, you know, because you personally, and 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 you know, the twelve or fifteen. Uh, Paramedics have stayed on, refused to allow their pasts indiv individually and respectively, collectively, to define uh, or, or allow other people to define their future for them. Um, this is uh, an excerpt uh, from American Sirens written by uh, Kevin Hazard. And I wanted to read this um, for the listeners and, and recommend that they get the book. Um, and, I, and I'm not getting any uh, monetary uh stipend by saying that i just want to put that out there i just yes. think it's an incredible uh history that uh that each of you that were interviewed and were spoken about shared uh th these are words from dr nancy caroline if you take with you into the future the dedication and spirit and pride which you have shown in your work here you will keep alive all that is meaningful and important about freedom house freedom house should be a symbol to all of you what you can achieve despite enormous odds. This is the end of a grand adventure, the end of a dream that was born eight years ago, but it need not be an end at all. You have proven yourselves. And that was, um, is, is 1975, is, as you were 
just running that last call in Squirrel Hill and, and getting ready to turn over uh, all the equipment, the keys, and, and shutting down and shuttering any resemblance of what Freedom House was over to the Bureau of Pittsburgh or City of Pittsburgh EMS. She, she was so ingrained in the culture of medicine and then your community the community of, of the hill which was what whatever was left after mm-hmm. um you know uh, i guess we call it uh um is it was in baldwin the uh when you eradicate businesses and houses in order to have a, a renaissance right. um uh, which changed the face of, of the hill and, and and other communities that had underserved uh civilians and citizens and also that that didn't look like the majority of those in the government. With that being said, and as we wrap this up, and I just want to give you the last words, um, you, you said that on Friday, um, the first female and uh, and Black or African-American chief of Pittsburgh EMS, whom you were able to mentor, uh, will, will be taking taking over and sworn in. What, what an amazing feat. On the backs of giants, she says in her words, when she was interviewed recently, still wears the Freedom House pin. We want to keep Freedom House Enterprises and Freedom House Ambulance um, known to those people. In your words specifically, John, where you said, if we went to a school or a university or stopped an ambulance today that was out getting fuel or food or something before the next call, do you know where your history came from? And some of them might begrudgingly or you know laughingly say, well, 1972 when emergency came out, not the case, right? 1968, right. not Miami, as some organizations are saying, not Los Angeles. Freedom House Enterprises, Freedom House Ambulance, 1967, it started. 1968 really got running um, because people were passionate, driven like yourself, and you had support despite overwhelming odds. This is the EMS Improv podcast where we have engaged, where we've tried to be mindful, and we've gotten to hear John Moon's stories. John, I want to give you the... Uh, the last words here as we wrap up for the listeners. Um, and again, I just thank you for your time and I'm so appreciative of the share. And if there's anything that you ever want to share, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and, and we'll make that happen. Well, um, first of all, it, it's, it's really a, a honor and, and, and a privilege uh, to even be on uh, your podcast. Um, you are fulfilling the desires of, of my heart and it's to keep the legacy and the historical perspective that Freedom House uh, created or designed uh, alive. Um, if you think about it, uh, we actually wrote the paramedic manual, the emergency care in the street, that every paramedic um, was allowed, were required uh, by the federal government to, to use as a, as a training uh, format. Um, and the first, second, and perhaps the third edition of that book pays tribute to Freedom House and the work that we did there. The sad part about that is as the uh, additional editions come into print, the legacy and the contributions that Freedom House um, is slowly wiped away. And and I, I say that to say uh, I've been monitoring uh, the new editions of emergency care in the streets. 
And they talk about the history of EMS. And like you said, they talk about Miami and Dallas and uh, Seattle and, and Los Angeles and what have you. They talk about how great those services are. And once they get to Freedom House, the only tribute that Freedom House gets is that we were labeled as a group of black men that didn't have an opportunity to get a high school education. And um, I still have yet to, to send a letter to the, the editor voicing my concerns about being labeled as that part of history. Because if you look at it, I myself spent 34 years with Pittsburgh EMS and I rose to the rank of assistant chief. Uh, Mitchell Brown, who was the operations director of uh, Freedom House, uh, went and designed Cleveland's EMS system from the ground up. He became public safety director for the state of Ohio. He became public safety director for Columbus, Ohio, uh, on the city council. They have a fire station named after him uh, in the city of Columbus. So if you look at the label that we were given, and you have to keep in mind, he was still part of that label of the least likely to succeed, hardcore unemployed, uh, society's throwaways. I think we did above and beyond, despite the label that society had placed on us. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of what he's accomplished. I'm very uh, proud of what I've been able to accomplish. And, and I look forward to uh, working with Pittsburgh's EMS chief to try to uh, make sure the legacy and the history that a group of black men that society said would never amount to anything created. And as long as we have podcasts such as yours and 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 uh, the Freedom House 2.0 project, as well as uh, an African American chief of Pittsburgh EMS. Uh, I have no doubt that that part of history uh, will remain uh, alive uh, because I've uh, committed the remaining days that I have left on this earth, which I hope will be uh, an enormous amount to making sure that part of history is not forgotten. And I, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for this opportunity and um, feel free to reach out to me anytime uh, for anything that uh, you want me to be a part of that re regards uh, talking about Freedom House. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I will, and last question I ask, for people that want to get in touch with you, is there a way that you would be comfortable with them reaching out to you in a, in a public fashion or, or in a private or personal fashion that's someplace that they can find you? Well, um, you can actually, I, I, I would like to say if you Google but what is it, LinkedIn? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you can get in touch with me via LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to uh, publicly put my uh, email address out to anyone, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, and once, uh, I'm not a big Facebook fan, so I, I, I can't help anyone there. So email uh, your podcast uh, and um, if they listen to, even if they Google uh, Freedom House, that's a good chance that John Moon's information will pop up somewhere. Uh, people uh, 
that I haven't known have found a way to get in touch with me, and I have no idea how they did it. So uh, email would be the best uh, format to use. But feel free to uh, share uh, my contact information. That's no uh, problem at all. I will do that, John. And and again, thank you very much. On behalf of uh, myself, paramedics, paramedicine, and its future, um, what, a, what a debt of gratitude and honor to have spent time with you. Peace I be really, with you. really appreciate it. Thanks, John.